Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you, Dave. Uh, I don't know that you called me a young man when I was on staff, so I'm not sure why that popped into your head today. Um, this young man's going to have to wear his reading glasses, so um, <clears throat> not, not as young anymore. And actually, yes, please pray for the uh, junior high camp, because my daughter, this is her last stab at that, pretty soon uh, she will be a ninth grader. So yeah, lots of kids are going to be up here for that. That's my middle daughter. My oldest is long past that. Well, I made the news recently. Yeah. Well, okay, actually, I didn't really make the news. Actually, my business made the news. Yeah, no, no, um, not really my business. Actually, my industry made the news. Does that count? Can I take credit for that? Um, well, my company installs window coverings, so I found out in this article I read, my brother sent me this article, we're actually called a specialty finishing contractor. I didn't know that that's what I was, but now I know that. So, you know, we come into new homes after they're built or homes that are remodeled. We put in drapes, shades, shutters, window coverings, that type uh, you know, adds privacy and beauty to a home. And I recently saw this article. It was published June 15th in the Washington Post, and it's titled, Seven Industries Most Desperate to Find Workers. Well, finishing contractors, specifically mentioned in the article, are drapery installers, is number three in terms of the increase in cost to hire qualified workers. Uh, we are struggling to find good people, apparently, um, maybe that's why my business is, has been so busy. Um, others on the list include long-haul truckers. So if you're looking for work, you might want to pay attention. Sawmill workers. Any sawmill workers here? No. Veterinary clinic staff. If you work with animals, apparently lots of people got animals during the pandemic. Um, most telling, though, is the number one industry on that list that are struggling to find people. Mental health practitioners. Does that surprise anybody? Because our world right now is hurting. People are struggling. And there's not enough qualified people to go around to help them. You know, that's one of those things that I've been trying to think about um, for a long time. When I used to work here, Sherry Kyle, part of the children's ministry staff, always used to say, the struggle is real, my friend. Can you relate to that? Well, it's true. And the struggle made its way all the way into pop music. How many of you know the group AJR? Yeah, nobody. That's good. Okay. Well, y'all go out and search for them. They're really good. They have pop, uh, catchy pop music. You probably heard some of their songs. Um, this past year, they released a song called Way Less Sad. And some of the telling lines from that song, it says, I'm A-OK, I'm A-OK. You say it, but you just don't mean it. No, I ain't happy yet, but I'm way less sad. Living sucks, they say, but it's sucking just a little now. And I don't want to cry no more, so I set my bar real low. People are struggling. They're searching. So much so that the bar for what it feels like to be okay is just getting lower and lower. And times are tough for so many people. And, you know, I've been trying to figure out what can I do to help? You know, I mean, trying to figure out what it means to be a business owner and to be in a new world after 16 years here on staff. I don't work for the church anymore, so that question just feels a little different. It feels harder to answer. But I've been asking it from a different perspective. How can I, as a dad, 
and as a husband, as a coworker and a service provider, and as a business owner, how can I help? And I bet you've been asking that question too. How can I help? Or maybe, maybe in addition to asking that question, you or I are the ones that are struggling. You know, people who sit in church seats or who listen to services online, people who give talks aren't immune from struggling. Maybe your social anxieties were heightened during the lockout and it's been hard to get back into a group setting. Maybe your kids struggle with school or with friendships and you're struggling to try and help them pull out of that funk. Maybe you're hurting financially because of a lost job or decreased hours. Maybe you're struggling because of a recent diagnosis for you or for somebody that you love. Life was already hard and now you're staring at the possibility of life with an illness or worse yet, you're staring at the end of life. Another question we can ask and should ask is what does the church have to offer to those who are struggling? What does Jesus have to offer? You know, there's a lot of passages in scripture that people look to and hold on to as promises um, to help them get through those struggling times. But you know, most of the Bible is actually written to specific groups of people or to specific individuals in specific contexts. And so while it's good, we can glean from the scripture all kinds of things that we can hold on to as truths for our own lives. But most of those were really originally directed towards others. But there is actually one passage in scripture that's specifically directed at you. It specifically mentions you. You made the news. And I think this passage speaks to us today in ways to help answer that question. What does Jesus have to offer to a struggling world? So we're going to go through a bunch of passages of scripture. I'm not going to put them up on the screen today. So you may want to open your Bible. You may want to open your Bible app. And you may want to look at uh, a group of chapters in the book of John, the gospel of John in the New Testament, chapters 14 through 17. And in those chapters, there's a record of a long discussion between Jesus and his followers, his disciples. And the discussion is sandwiched between two events. So it's a discussion in the middle, events on the sides. And in the middle of that, that first event is the Lord's Supper. So in that, Jesus was sitting down with his disciples. It was the last meal that he ate in this life. Um, he sits down, and during that meal, he predicts a bunch of things. He predicts his death. He predicts that Peter would deny him. He predicts that Judas, one of his followers, Peter also one of his followers, Judas, one of his followers, would betray him. See, this was not a happy meal. It was a sad meal. So chapter 13 is the Lord's Supper. On the back end of those four chapters is chapter 18. In that chapter, all of those events that Jesus predicted happened. Jesus is betrayed and arrested. Peter denies Jesus three times. Then Jesus is tried before two courts, is unjustly sentenced to death with false accusations, and hung on a cross to die. Those were dark days. And Jesus knew that his followers would need help during the short-term struggles of those events, but also for the long haul, for the long haul struggles as well. So in chapter 17, Jesus prays. 
And it's recorded for us there in that chapter, John chapter 17, and what's become known as the high priestly prayer. And that's where Jesus mentioned you, and he mentioned me as well. In verse 20, it says this. Verse 20 of chapter 17. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the 12 disciples that he was sitting with, that he was talking with, and he, that he was praying with, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, y'all. That's anybody through the ages who believe in him. And what does Jesus pray for? He prays for two things specifically. First, he prays for the glorification of the Father, meaning God the Father, that God would be glorified, that God would be honored, that God would be exalted. And then the second thing he prays for is the unity among the believers. So why does he pick those two things? I mean, Jesus just predicted he was going to leave his followers by being killed on the cross. He just predicted that his followers were going to fall away, betray him, deny him. Why did Jesus pray for those two things and not pray that God would take care of people and take, you know, keep his followers from harm? Well, I, I think the reason he prayed for the glory of the Father and that the believers would feel unified as the children of the Father, because that is what a suffering world needs most. Those who are struggling with fear need peace. Those who are struggling with anxiety need to feel a sense of trust. Those who are struggling financially need their needs met, but more than that, they need to feel security. Those who are overworked need rest. Those who are underworked need a sense of purpose. Those who are facing illness or death need to know that there is a future beyond their present situation. In a word, those who are struggling need hope. What Jesus prayed for was a sense of belonging. What he prayed for was that believers led by God the Father would be a family. He was praying that they would live and act like a family is supposed to live and act. Let me talk just a little bit, address two things about family before we go further on. First, no one has a perfect family. Actually, your family might be so bad that an image of believers of God under God, the Father, might turn your stomach. And to that, I just say I'm deeply sorry. That is not how it's supposed to be. The first institution that God created was the family, way back in the beginning of Genesis. But that family fell. That family sinned, and through that sin, the whole world, including all families, are now imperfect. And many are just downright evil. But the best image of what believers are supposed to do and to, supposed to be is the image of a unified family led by God as their father. So second, second thing to address before we go further is the church historically has not always operated as a very good family. The church has been a source of hurt, of fighting, of division, and that's not how it's supposed to be either. You know, oftentimes the problems from the church stem from the wrong focus. It stems from an inward focus. The problem happens when the church only wants to include those in certain groups that look a certain way, that think a certain way, that have a certain behavior set, or that belong to a certain kind of heritage. 
It makes me think of a song that was popular when I was a kid in the 80s. Anyone remember the song? It goes like this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Joint heirs with Jesus, cleansed by his blood. And my wife didn't recognize it either. She said it was because I didn't have enough twang in my voice when I sang it. And I apologize if that song means something different to you than it means to me. But I always remember that song just somehow felt wrong. I mean, maybe the words were right. And I couldn't pinpoint it as a kid. But now I kind of think it just felt exclusive. Like only certain people were allowed. And we're celebrating that we're in and you're not. That closed door, let's just take care of each other and no one else attitude, that is not what Jesus was praying for. See, look at verse 21. Jesus continues his prayer and he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they, meaning those who follow him, the children of God, also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's the purpose of us being a family? So that the world may believe that you sent me. What happens when the world believes? They become a part of the family. That is not an exclusive club. The purpose of believers being a family is to take care of each other, yes, but in such a way that the whole world, that those not already in the family, want to become a part. The purpose of the believers being a family is to offer hope to a hurting world. You see, hope, sweet hope, is found when you become a part of home, sweet home. Hope is found in relationship. Hope is found in family. And this family, the family of God, is not an exclusive club that's only for the few. Familyness, if I can coin a word, is offered to anyone who is willing to receive it. And the church, despite its flaws, is the best place for that to happen. That is what Jesus established the church for. Any of you seen the movie 12 Mighty Orphans that's in theaters now? Actually, I hear that one of our own was uh, an extra in the movie. Nash Bland was in that. I saw that on Facebook. I saw that after I had found the movie. Actually, I listened to the book. I drive a lot more than I used to now. And I saw that this movie was coming out, and I, I grabbed the book, and so I listened to the book. The book's better than the movie, I'll be honest with you. It does a much, much better job of establishing the story, so I recommend it. But it's about a football team that dominated the early years of Texas high school football. It was in the late 1920s and the early 1930s, and if you paid attention in history class, you know that those were the years of the Great Depression. It was the worst financial time our country has ever experienced. World War I was only a decade in the past, and something we all learned about this last year, the global pandemic called the Spanish flu, which none of you knew about until 2020, was also only a decade in the rearview mirror at that time. So we think times are hard now, and they are. Well, times were really tough then. One, one group that experienced the hardest times were orphans. The story of the 12 mighty orphans happened right in our backyard, right here in Fort Worth. And that's what's so intriguing about it. You can actually drive and see all the different sites that are talked about 
in the book and the movie. Well, against that backdrop of the struggles of the 20s and 30s Depression era Fort Worth, we find the Fort Worth Masonic Children's Home. It had been established earlier in the century to care for orphaned children of the Masons, which is a, a group, a club, a fraternity. And in the midst of the challenges of the world, these children had it the worst. I mean, they'd already lost a parent or they wouldn't even be there, right? One of the boys featured in the movie, a boy named Hardy Brown, witnessed the murder of his father and then watched as his mother ran for her own life, leaving her four children, the youngest of whom was only four years old, to fend for themselves on a West Texas farm. Then after his father's killers were brought to court, they were unjustly acquitted of their crime. And so a family friend took it into his own hands to bring justice, and he shot the men who had killed Hardy's dad. But just for good measure, he brought young Hardy Brown along with him to watch as he killed them. So that was the kind of life these boys were already experiencing when they ended up in the Masonic Children's Home. And life in the home was really honestly brutal. I mean, they were beat for the smallest missteps and misbehaviors. They were forced into labor. Their teachers often were cruel. There was little hope for a better life for these boys. Well, enter Coach Rusty Russell. The story goes that Coach Russell and his wife Juanita came to the Masonic Children's Home in 1927. It's kind of a misnomer to call him a, a football coach. Actually, he was really just a teacher trying to start a team because, see, the school had never played organized football before. They had very little in the way of equipment, just a couple of helmets and one or two sets of shoulder pads. They didn't even own a football, not a single football. Juanita made their first practice ball out of old baking soda cans and tape. Upon his arrival at the orphan's home, Coach Russell invited the orphan boys to be a part of this startup football team. Well, through a mix of hard work, ahead-of-his-time football strategy, and the extreme grittiness and toughness of the orphan boys, the team moved from non-existent to playing for the state championship at the highest level of Texas football within five years. They tied with Corsicana High School for the state championship in 1932, though they were outnumbered and outsized. And over the course of his 16 years as coach at the Masonic home, the mighty mites as they came to be known because they were always outmanned, they were always outnumbered, but they were still always mighty tough. Over 16 years that Coach Russell was there, he made the state playoff 10 times, playing for the state championship twice. His teams played against and beat teams with future college and professional players such as TCU Heisman Trophy winner Davey O'Brien. So what was his secret? How did Coach Russell accomplish so much with so little? Well, see, Coach Russell saw the hardship of these boys and he wanted to help. Coach Russell believed that these boys needed something to work toward, something to look forward to. The orphans at the home needed hope for a future that is better than today. Coach Russell was one of the greatest football minds ever. He was one of the inventors of the spread offense that's common today but was unheard of 100 years ago. But more than being a football savant, he was a father figure. Coach Russell wasn't just different in how he thought about football. He was different in how he treated the orphans. Instead of a quick temper, Coach offered a quiet care. 
Instead of beatings, Rusty Russell offered belonging. Instead of fear, Russell offered family. Instead of harshness, he offered hope. And Jesus offers the same to our hurting world. I told you that Jesus had this long discussion with his disciples. We'll go back to chapter 14. In John 14, verse 2, it says, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That is where I am. You may also be. See, Jesus offers belonging. He offers a family. He offers hope. You might not know the story of the 12 mighty orphans, but I bet you've heard of another movie about an orphan. You probably know the story of Little Orphan Annie. That one's been around a while. And there's a song in that movie titled Maybe. In that song, Annie expresses her hope that maybe one day she'll get to be in a family. Maybe her parents didn't leave her for good after all. Some of the lines, she says, maybe far away or maybe real nearby. He may be pouring her coffee. She may be straightening his tie. Maybe in a house all hidden by a hill. She's sitting playing piano. He's sitting paying a bill. So maybe now this prayer is the last one of its kind. Won't you please come get your baby? Maybe, she says. Annie's plea is filled with maybes. You know what? There's no maybes in what Jesus offers. I love how that verse phrases it. He says, if it weren't so, would I have told you? He tells us that there's a home prepared for those who believe. And in verse 18, he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's preparing them for the fact that he's going to go, but he's not going to leave them. Furthermore, John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus knows that belonging brings peace. Being a part of his family can bring a quiet heart. It can alleviate troubles. It can alleviate fear. Well, eventually in the story of little orphan Annie and in the story of the 12 mighty orphans, each of them found hope through belonging to a family. For Annie, it was Daddy Warbucks, who had a really nice haircut, that adopted her and gave her a family. For the 12 mighty orphans, none of them were adopted. But they found a family in Coach Russell and in Juanita, and they found a family in their teammates. Many of those orphans went on to accomplish things no one thought possible. Rusty Russell died in December 1983, and at his funeral, one of his former players, Abner McCall, who by that time had grown from being an orphan kid to being the president of Baylor University, had this to say about his coach. Mr. Russell, he says, was one of my heroes. Our team was just an ordinary group of boys, and only half of us weighed as much as 140 pounds. We weren't bigger stronger or better than our opponents. What made the difference for us was Rusty Russell. His genius was in his ability to make every boy a giant in his own eyes. In addition to producing a future president of Baylor University, the Mighty Mites produced numerous Texas high school hall of famers, 
college all-stars and professional standouts. Off the football field, their accomplishments were even more impressive. These orphans, once tossed away by society, became business pioneers, decorated military leaders, teachers, and family men. Among the group was Miller Mosley, who worked under Albert Einstein on the Manhattan Project before becoming a, ph a physics professor at TCU until his retirement in 1990. One of the best football players to come out of that school was D. Witt Coulter, who grew from a shy boy to one of the best players on the NFL's New York Giants before he retired to pursue a career in art, and then finally as the activity director for a special education school in the Austin area. These boys found hope through their football family. Not only did they find hope themselves, but they brought hope to a suffering world. The Mighty Mites became heroes known across the country. Fan mail poured in from both coasts. The Mighty Mites even caught the attention of President of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt. The world was desperate and suffering, and this story of orphans who found a family became a bright light of hope that inspired millions. You know, when an orphan joins a family, the legal term for that is adoption. My family's an adoption family. My wife, Jenny, and I have three kids, all of whom are adopted. After years of struggling with infertility, God grew our family through adoption. And in our situation, our kids brought as much hope to us, maybe more hope to us, as we brought hope to them. My dad and my brother are also adopted. Their situations were different, however, than my kids. My dad was raised by a distant relative of his biological mother. She was still in the picture. He'd go spend time with her at holidays and other times throughout the year. Um, his adoptive parents never officially adopted him. I don't know why things were just different back in the 40s and 50s. And Well, the difference in his quote-unquote adoption became most obvious to me on the day that I helped my dad and my uncle clean out the apartment where my adopted grandparents had been living before they both died. Over the course of a nine-month period a few years ago, my dad, who is a pastor, by the way, preached the funeral service for all three of his parents. First, his adoptive mother, followed by his biological mother, and then finally his adoptive father. After the last of those funerals, we were cleaning out that apartment, and I realized my dad had no inheritance coming to him from his adoptive parents. What little there was left belonged to my uncle, who was the biological child of my adoptive grandparents. Thankfully, our family's on good terms with that. There were no issues with it, but it just made me realize the importance of a full legal adoption. I, I hold in my hand here um, the birth certificate for my son, my six-year-old son, Jaden. It is a copy. Don't worry, my wife would kill me if I brought the real one here. I also want to show it to you on the screen. So highlighted in yellow there, um, this is his legal birth certificate, by the way. There is no other birth certificate. So highlighted in yellow, what does it say? What are the names of the people that are on, listed there as mother and father? Somebody dare to read? That's right. Virginia Love Murphy. Yes, my, I just gave away my wife's maiden name. Jenny, Virginia Love Murphy. And what is the one at the bottom? Can you read that? Jason Douglas Noble. Now you know my middle name. The names on my son's birth certificate are my name and my wife's name. He didn't come into our home until he was nine months old. We didn't legally adopt him until he was three years old. 
But when an adoption becomes legal, they issue a birth certificate as if he had been born to us. It is binding and it cannot be changed. See, when God offers us a chance to be a part of his family, that's the kind of offer he gives. You're not gonna find out someday that you don't get to be a part of the inheritance. Romans 8 verse 14 says it this way, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God and daughters of God, I might add. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God offers us that full legal adoption. Like Jaden's adoption, he issues a new birth certificate with his name as our father. We never have to live in fear of our past and we never have to worry for our future. We never have to wonder if we will gain the inheritance. We can live in assurance and that assurance brings hope. Like Rusty Russell gave his boys hope, to see themselves as giants that could be someone in the world, God offers us hope to be someone that can live a life glorifying to him and that we, along with all of his children, will gain an inheritance. So let's bring this home with a little application here. How can you help those who are suffering? Well, if you, like me, are a leader in some sort of setting at work, in a family, you're a parent or a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, you lead in ministry, lead with care. Encourage, don't enrage. Build up, don't tear down. Help those in your charge to see themselves as giants. Help them to see themselves as someone worthy of being an heir to something great. Those we lead need to feel that they belong. Whatever place you're a part of, and I, I've been trying to figure this out in my own world now, is whatever place you're a part of, make it a family. Create an environment that is life-giving and that is encouraging. When you lead, lead with hope. You know, if all of this is new to you and you just sort of stum somehow have been searching and maybe you stumbled on this church for some reason, you're wondering what Jesus have to, has to offer you. Let me say it to you this way. Join in. Get involved. Maybe you get involved in this church or another church somewhere serving. Maybe you need to join a group. You've been hearing a lot lately, and they don't pay me anymore, so they didn't tell me to say this. You've been hearing a lot lately about the three rhythms, right? Worship together, serve together, life together. All that is is just big fancy words that says get to be a part of the family. Find people who you are comfortable talking to and ask questions. Ask God your questions and listen for his answers because he offers answers. He offers hope through his family. Maybe you're already a believer 
And you've kind of been sitting on the sidelines, either because you've never gotten involved or because you stepped away because of the pandemic and you don't know, are you ready to get back involved or not? Let me just say this, engage, participate in the family. Don't hide, don't just fill a seat. Find your niche and do something for someone else. Contribute, make a difference. And who knows, maybe you'll give hope to someone while also finding hope for yourself. If you've been in the church for a long time and you struggle with anyone who isn't like you, they don't look like you, they don't think like you, ask God to help you be open. The family of God isn't supposed to be like that 80s song. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. It's more like that 70s song. You guys know this one. We are family. Come on now. You guys know this one. I got all my sisters with me. Yeah, yeah. We are family. Come on now. Get up everybody and sing. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to make you do any more. Look, life is supposed to be good when you're part of the family. You're supposed to find hope and joy and enjoy those blessings. Last thing for all of us, remember, inviting others to join in is one of the most loving things you can do. There's a lot of pressure these days to say, hey, when we tell people about what we believe, that we're, you know, we're somehow demeaning them, that's not the case. Hope, sweet hope, comes from home, sweet home. And if you don't show others where you find your hope, where will they find it? Will they lower the bar and settle for being just way less sad than they used to be? Or can we challenge them to be mighty in life, no matter how outmanned and outsized they may feel? When you find hope yourself, the right thing to do is to pass it along. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for stories of hope where people have mimicked what you do. And ultimately, that's what they're doing. When we give other people hope, when we pass on hope, we're just mimicking what you've done, Jesus, by offering us that hope through this family, through what you call the church. God, I'm so grateful for that. I pray, Lord, no matter what stage or phase of life we're in, whether we're seeking, God, help people to reach out for help. Whether we've been here for a long time and it's time for us to realize that you know, maybe our attitude isn't what it should be and we need to be more open to others. Maybe we need to offer that hope at, in our workplace or in our school by changing how we lead. Maybe we need to offer that hope by just telling people about you, Jesus. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Help us to pass that on to others in our lives as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to uh, say a couple of quick things and then I'm gonna close us with a, a, another quick little passage of scriptures. If you wanna talk to somebody about what it means to find that hope or you wanna pray with somebody or you're like, okay, all right, I finally need to get up and get involved, you can go to talk to the folks in the corner at the prayer things. Um, I'm sure there's gonna be somebody out in the community space. Again, they didn't tell me to say that. I'm sure you can talk to somebody. Get involved, seriously. Um, the last thing is this. Everybody stand up for me for a second. I'm going to dismiss you on this. If you look at the end of that chapter, 
um, in John chapter 14, the very last verse says this. Jesus and his disciples have been sitting. They've been talking. And this is what he says. He says, rise, let us go from here. And what I take from that is Jesus and his disciples didn't stay put. They didn't just sit and talk about it. They didn't just think about it. They went and did something about it. And neither should we. So today I say this, rise, let's go from here. Go to your workplace, go to your family, go to your school, go to your friends and be someone who offers hope. Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Thank you guys for being here today. Remember, next week is Step Up Sunday. If you have kids that are school age, they're moving to their next grade next weekend. And we will see you back here next weekend. Have a great week.